Thank you for coming to today's event, which is co-sponsored by the Celebrating Diversity LGBTQ Plus Subcommittee and the GASP Club, which is Gender and Sexuality Progress. We'd like to thank the marketing department for the flyers that they made, and especially the library for hosting our event and for making a recording of the event today. Um, just real quickly, if you're here for a class that has a sign-in sheet, the sign-in sheets are over there, um, and make sure to sign in for your class. Uh, we're very happy to welcome Dr. Yasmin Nair, who is a writer, activist, and academic from Hyde Park in Chicago. She's the co-founder of the Queer Radical Editorial Collective Against Equality and a member of Gender Just Chicago. Her writing and organizing address issues like neoliberalism and inequality, queer politics and theory, the politics of rescue and affect, sex trafficking, the art world, and the immigration crisis. Her work appears in the Chicago Reader, Baffler, Time Out Chicago, The Bellerico Project, Windy City Times, Bitch, and countless journals and anthologies. She's also an editor-at-large of Current Affairs. Today she will be presenting What's Left of Queer. In the aftermath of a Trump election, both the right and left are scrambling to define and redefine themselves. As the struggle to understand what happened turns into a questioning of political ideology and strategies, Issues like free speech, campus politics, war, poverty, and the role of the U.S. in international politics are newly fraught as all sides struggle to gain and regain power. In all of this, LGBTQ plus politics and cultural issues like marriage and inclusion in the military have emerged as newly contested arenas. Alongside the fear of, say, marriage disappearing as a right, and the removal of trans soldiers from the military, comes a critique from parts of the gay and queer left of the very idea that marriage is anything to be fought for or that trans people benefit from military inclusion. Forgotten in all of this is the long history of radical and left politics in the LGBTQ community and the links between that and radical and left politics in the US and worldwide. What's left of queer will first trace a brief history of a radical queer politics, and second, discuss the relevance of such to the contemporary political landscape. Please help me give a warm welcome to Dr. Yasmin Nair. Me now? Okay, excellent. Uh, take it on, take it off. Okay. I'll just keep it on because this is Chicago. So, thank you to everyone for getting me here. Um, uh, especially Jeffrey and Tish, I've known for years. Where is she? Ah, there she is. Um, I've known Jeffrey for years. Uh, I've known Tish for years when we all lived more or less near each other at various times in uptown Chicago. Uh, I have to say, when I left academia proper, which is formally, uh, the one thing that I regretted, the only thing actually I regretted about leaving academia formally was library access to academic journals and such. And the only thing that's kept me and my work going is access to public libraries, which more or less you know, give access to information and to journal articles. So, which is to say, ever since I've known Tish, um, She's been devoted to the idea of libraries. She's a fantastic librarian, I have no doubt. Uh, 
And it gives me such great pleasure to not only be here in, on this amazing campus, but also you know, to be doing this for two old friends. Not that we, it, it all sort of came together and I realized Tish is here. So it's just wonderful to be here around old and new friends and also on this spectacular campus. I was given a short tour today. Um, it's amazing. Um, I'm still sort of in awe. I used to teach at UIC where we're just literally crumbling. You know, they've had to set up those uh, protective structures so that people don't die from things falling on them. So this is amazing. And there are windows. There are so many windows. It's astonishing. Brutalism with windows is just a fantastic concept. So thank you. Thank you for inviting me here. Um, thank you to GASP and to everyone else uh, behind the scenes who helped make this possible. So. What I'd like to do today first is put on the reading glasses is to mostly, yes, read, but also try to not simply talk at you. And so it'll be sort of reading and then looking at you and going off a little bit extempore. But if you have any questions that are, you know, during um, during my presentation, feel free to stop me and ask if a, if a term streams, seems odd, if you don't, if you don't hear me. Um, all of that is fine. I know that a lot of you are here, mostly perhaps because um, you've been asked to be here, asked to be here uh, by your instructors, and that's fine. Uh, some of you might have come here because you're actually curious as well, and it might be any combination of the two, that's fine. I don't take offense at any questions. Um, I was one of the earliest um, people to take to LGBTQ blogs back in the sort of the dinosaur age of uh, blogging. So I have been there from the beginning of trolldom. You know, I understand what it's, you know, I've dealt with every kind of question, every kind of hostility. So I take no offense at anything. I can, you know, so ask me any questions you like at the end during, uh, preferably during the end, you know, but just for the flow. But uh, as Jeffrey said, I'm an academic activist and writer. Depending on the day and the mood, um, I use different configurations of those terms. My work dr draws from several and sometimes overlapping lives I've led and continue to lead. So just a brief history is that uh, I got a PhD in theory and cultural studies from the English department at Purdue in 2000. I got a job as, a, as an adjunct instructor at UIC, where for a while I was also part of those who were organizing at the time uh, to unionize adjuncts. I had a very, very small, minimal role to play in all of that. I can take none of the credit for what's happened since then. Um, and I left academia in 2000 uh, because it wasn't, I wasn't able to write. And I had come into academia in order to write, right? So adjuncting, I realized, uh, did not give me that opportunity. So I left, and I left behind as a result um, a, a, a different kind of life altogether. Today, I'm a freelance writer. I'm an academic. I consider myself one, but I still write for, not just because I write for academic journals, but because academic work is still something that keeps me going. Um, and I have a, an enormous respect uh, and regard for systems of higher education, for academic pursuits. And I say that because that's partly going to be something that sort of directs my talk today. And I say that especially because 
at a time when I think academia of all sorts, right, across the board is, I think, facing threat from funding cuts, et cetera, there's also a strong anti-intellectual bias, even among people on the left, against institutions of higher education. Uh, you know, there's this constant sense of, well, given the crisis that we're all facing, the job market, et cetera, there are no jobs for anyone, et cetera, why are we asking people to go to college or to university and so on and so forth? Um, and I think a lot of people, especially, you know, in my situation, who left academia uh, for any number of reasons have decided that because they're not in academia, academia is not worth it, right? Which is such a mean, spiteful, petty way to look at things. And what I really have been trying to do, especially in the last couple of years, uh, is to get us to think about what intellectual work means, not just confined to academia, certainly, but what that means in terms of politics, right? How does intellectual work jive with political work, uh, especially in times that we all consider. I don't think we're in a particularly high moment of crisis, frankly, because you know some of us have seen worse. Uh, it just feels like a tremendous moment of crisis. But this is as bad a time as any. And you know we can talk about the politics of what's going on today. But you know, what does academic work, what is intellectual work, how does all of that contribute to our lives today? Uh, that's sort of a, a burning question for me. I came of academic age and of queer age, which is to say I came out as queer in the early 90s. And if you're not familiar with what was going on in the early 90s, uh, in terms of queer theory, in terms of uh, queer studies in academia, that was sort of a high moment for some of books like Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, Yves Kosofsky's Sedgwick, uh, Epistemology of the Closet. There were all these books that were incredibly intense theoretical takes on gender and sexuality that, had, that came out in that particular period of time. Um, now, there are those who would say, you know, this is sort of world-changing because you had this, these books that were written that re-articulated what gender and sexuality could look like. Those of us you know, who've been queer radicals for a long time would say, well, actually, a lot of what appeared in those books, for instance, the idea that a lot of us might take for granted today, which is that gender is performance, right? All of that was actually visible on the streets. It was visible in clubs. It was visible in daily life for a lot of queer people. The books simply articulated a certain kind of vision of what that meant, right? But be that as it may, so the 90s was sort of when queer theory, what we call queer theory and queerness became almost like a hip academic object, of, a fetish object almost. And I came of age at that, um, at that time. So since then, I have been, and I still am, a queer activist, an immigration activist. Uh, we can talk about what it means to be an activist, right, as a fetish object of sorts. I'm also mostly, however, right now, a writer who writes about a lot of things. Um, I write about gender and sexuality, but I also write, and I don't mean this as a pejorative or a term of, uh, uh, you know, I, I actually literally write about shit. I write about shit. I do investigative journalism, or I have done. I would like to return to it. But investigative journalism takes money that a lot of publishers don't have these days. Uh, I write about shit. I write about utopia. My, my large, single largest project recently was about utopia. What, what do we imagine as a utopia, right? What's a manifesto for a utopia? Um, but the point is that my work comes from a moment that a lot of us who are queer identified, queer radical, queer radical activists, 
tend to think of in somewhat nostalgic terms. Uh, you know, and we also tend to think about queer as radical and liberatory, right? So we separate, and I'll explain the distinctions that we draw between gay and lesbian and queer, for instance. A lot of us think of queer as being the sort of radical side of gender and sexuality, the most radical side, the side that's going to uh, you know, shift paradigms of gender and sexuality. For a long time, that's actually how I came into work. Um, that's actually how I entered work and activism as well. More recently, um, I'm not so sure that queer in itself produces or means radical possibilities, right? Now, before I continue, I also want to say my work and the work of a lot of people working on queer theory or queer activism or who define ourselves as queer never happens in isolation. So I just want to point to a few people who have influenced me and also just you know, certain archives. Uh, I co-founded Against Equality uh, with my friend and comrade Ryan Conrad and againstequality.net is where you'll find an archive of our work. Uh, the right and cultural commentator Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is a huge influence uh, on me and a lot of other people. Um, Karma Chavez, an immigration activist uh, and also a member of Against Equality. The lawyer, the tr uh, Dean Spade, who writes a lot about uh, trans issues uh, is also a huge influence. So these are just some of the people. Also a huge influence is a group called, and I have um, newsletters. I have this newsletter there. If anyone wants a copy, I've got a, quite, a, quite a few copies. But this is an organization, a group, a conglomeration of people um, called Gay Shame. Um, this is an actual group that's been around now for about 15 years. They operate out of uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area, Oakland, and they are, pr I think at this point, they might well be the longest running queer, radical, not nonprofit kind of group. Uh, recently, the mo their most recent projects involve fighting gentrification in San Francisco. San Francisco, as you might know, is in incredibly, of course, because of the way it's structured, is often is, 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 is the site of much gentrification. Um, and a lot of poor people, a lot of poor queers in particular have been wiped out, you know, have been pushed out of San Francisco. Gay Shame has been involved in those kind of anti-gentrification uh, efforts. But it has also been involved, as Against Equality has, in uh, efforts in the gay and lesbian community to make marriage, for instance, an acceptable form of political organizing. And I'll talk a little bit about why we radical queers have some issues with that. But that's Gay Shame, and I invite you to take a look at their newsletter. And this is a free poster if you're interested in uh, queer radical politics. Uh, that's, that's where you'll find an expression of it as well. So, you know, when Jeffrey and I first talked about what I might talk about, at first, of course, it, was, it seemed self-evident. You know, I'll talk about a history, and it's still going to be that, a history, a quick history of queer radical politics, its relevance for today, and so on. But as you may know, um, and I'll, you know, I'll give more details as we move on, but as you probably know, uh, both the academic and non-academic worlds have been shaken, roiled, moved, <laughs> uh, by, disrupted by a lot of sex scandals recently, right? So if you're familiar with people like Louis C.K., uh, he's just one famous example, George Takei, Kevin Spacey, 
any number of uh, very highly placed um, um, writers and publishers, writers of the publishing world, the, in the academic world also there are a lot of uh, sca scandals emerging about sexual harassment and abuse. That's just one of the sort of mainstream issues, right, that's rocking our world as we know it, and it's having an effect also on academic institutions. And it's only going to get bigger. The story is only going to get bigger. We're hearing more and more stories about sexual harassment and abuse in academia, in entertainment, everywhere, right? And of course, there are other issues going on uh, besides the, you know, we focus a lot on the Trump presidency, but the fact is that a lot of what Trump is making evident to us, as with, for instance, deportations, a lot of that actually has been happening over the past eight years. It's just that we chose not to pay attention, right? So Obama, for instance, deported more people than both the Bushes combined. But that's not a figure that you often hear uh, spoken of very much. But this is the moment where I thought, you know, I was thinking about how do I uh, you know, how do I talk about these issues about queer radical politics, and how do I do that, and I decided that I cannot do that, without also somehow implicating, right, queer radical politics in that other kind of framework. And I cannot, I decided, come into an institution of higher learning and pretend that nothing outside is having an in effect on what's going on inside and what's going on with queer radical politics, right? Especially because the word queer itself has a strange kind of connection. If you look at the history of queer, it has a strange kind of connection to academic discourse. There are those who say, well, actually, it emerged from outside academia. A group of activists in New York were the first one to take the word queer and appropriate it for themselves. And then it became a part of academic discourse. So there's that contentious origin to queer itself. But there is that kind of weird link to academia. And there is the fact that what we are living in is a world where, as I said at the very beginning, you know, academia itself is under threat. Uh, funding cuts, but also I think the kinds of issues that we're seeing bubbling up uh, to the surface are going to, be keep, are going to keep exploding. So I could not, you know, in all honesty, I simply could not uh, simply come in here and talk about queer radical politics as of none of that was happening outside. So the question for me is, you know, this is a terribly old-fashioned uh, sort of stale question, which is, if you, uh, what is the life of the mind? <laughs> we all like to think, right? Why are we here? What, is, what does higher learning mean? What does education mean? What does academic discourse mean? How do we think about the concepts we learn, whatever our field or expertise might be, and think about ways not to shut down intellectual work, but how to expand it? So can we think about education outside of education without dismantling the structures of education? And I say this because you know, the university, as much as it is under threat, is also, I think, something worth recovering, right? So what is worth recovering? What do we leave behind as we move forward? I've been thinking a lot about utopias. I've been thinking a lot about breaking down the world. I have a friend who started, um, started a, a tenure track position relatively recently, will not name them, uh, but they said to me that in meetings, they're sort of very radical, and they said during academic, uh, you know, committee meetings and so on, everyone else wants to say, well, how can we save the university money? And he wants, they want to say, <laughs> how can we burn the university down from the inside? Um, I'm not really interested in burning the university down, right? I'm interested in thinking about what's its place in 
our intellectual and political and, uh, lives. So a lot of what I'm going to do today is to set up the conditions of possibility. I'm going to talk about two specific uh, political instances, trans inclusion in the military and gay marriage in that history. But I really want to sort of frame all of that in terms of what makes, what makes radical politics possible, right? Um, and how does what we think about radical politics come into con you know, collision with radical thought and politics as well? So, you know, I think everyone today, especially again in the Trump era, is working with some sense of, of an apocalypse, right? This idea that, oh, everything is just breaking down, everything is just going to hell in a handbasket. Um, and there's a lot of talk about how we all need to simply educate each other and ourselves. Now, if you're a fan of The Walking Dead, as I am, right, you know that the way to prepare for a zombie apocalypse is to teach each other how to fight, right? And that's all fine. That's great. I love The Walking Dead. But in reality, right, in reality, how do we, do we recognize an apocalypse as it hits us? Is it really happening? And in reality, how do we teach ourselves, right? How do we teach each other? How do we keep the structures we need to keep ourselves going? So, to, so which brings me to what I'd like to talk about today, to just go over the brief description, which is, again, in the aftermath of a Trump election, when both right and left seem to struggle to, to define themselves. It's very hard right now to figure out who's on the right and who's on the left right now. It's not really that clear cut. Um, as, a struggle, as we struggle to understand what happened, right, we're also struggling to understand political ideology and strategies. So right now, again, free speech, uh, gender politics, trans inclusion, gay marriage, will it be taken away from us, et cetera. And all of that, in all of that, it's queer politics, LGBTQ politics and cultural issues that have emerged as newly contested areas. But what is the history, right? What is the history of all of this? How do these movements, social movements, come to be? And do they, did they re are they really movements, right? Are they really movements constituted by a number of people wanting the same thing for a lot of other people? Or are they actually for very specific groups of people? That's, I think, the question that we tend to forget to ask. Now, in all of this, I just want to first make my politics absolutely clear, which is, and I don't know what comes first or last, so I'll just put this in any order if you, you like. I'm a leftist and I'm a feminist, right? So I'm adamantly a leftist, I'm adamantly a feminist, and I'm also a materialist, which is to say I think about structures of power a lot. Um, I think about what are institutions that have power, right? And how do we, those of us who want change, how do we get that power? How do we get it to move forward? How do we get it for everyone, right? I'm very interested in power, and I have been, I realize, my entire life. So when I come to a left politics, I come to it with a belief that the world needs to be a better place for different kinds of people. Uh, rather, sorry, um, I don't come to a rather. I don't, this is why I should have worn my red glasses. I don't come to a left politics with a belief that the world needs to be a better place for different kinds of people and that we all need to love each other. I don't believe in that. What I do believe in that the world is that the world needs to be a better place no matter who you are and what we feel about each other. Right? So it sounds like there's not much of a distinction, but it's actually a huge distinction. 
I come from the world of social justice organizing, which is also something that's very much fetishized both in academia and outside, right? Social justice. There are now degrees you can get in social justice. Uh, it's, it's an object of study now. And within that is the belief that what we need is a better place for all of us and that what we need is to love each other, right? That's sort of the, that's kind of the general sense. My sense of it things is um, that we don't have to care about each other to actually want a better world. And that can be very startling to a lot of people, especially in the social justice worlds that I, that I occupy, which is how do you build a better world for people you really don't care about or for people you actually even actively dislike? Right? That's a much more profound and difficult, I think, question. Right? How do you do that? Uh, so as a materialist, I'm not even concerned with who we are. So, and that this is going to sound odd because I keep telling you that I'm a queer, radical, feminist, leftist activist, right? So I'm trying to tell you who I am, but I'm also trying to tell you that I don't care about essential ideas of who we are. So I don't care about, you know, how people identify as women or men or not. Um, I'm concerned about structures of history, which is why, you know, a lot of my radical friends and I have been going on and on and on about, listen, if you don't pay attention to you know, the old chestnut, right? Those who ignore history are, prepared, are poised to repeat it, et cetera. But there's some truth to that, right? Which is that if you forget about history, then you also forget about how institutions don't actually change. The military doesn't actually change by including trans people. It doesn't become better. It just means it makes trans people do horrible things as well, right? So if you only think about essential identities and how to fit them into these nice sort of, you know, uh, dioramas of diversity, you're not doing anything to fundamentally change the world, right? You're not getting rid of the military, for instance. Not only that, you're not getting rid of the need for the military, more importantly, and I'll talk about that a bit more. So I'm not really concerned with essential identities. You know, often, as you know, as you may or may not know, in social justice activist circles, all our meetings begin with, you know, I'm not making fun of anyone for this, but a lot of our meetings start with, what's your gender pronoun? What's your preferred pronoun? And I always say, I really don't have a preference. And there are people who actively take, you know, take that as some sort of an insult, and I really don't. Um, one of the things that I come out of in terms of queer theory is to say, you know, gender is someone else's construct of me. And I, I don't wake up in the morning thinking I am woman, right? Except on certain days. But, uh, you know, but I don't actually think that we have to keep thinking essentially, you know, are you, in terms of race, in terms of gender, that's not how we orient the world. That being said, of course, it is a fact that who you are in the world matters a great deal. I live in Hyde Park. If you're a young black youth walking down Hyde Park and you dare go near someone's car or bicycle, you will have six cops upon you. So that is where identity, yes, does make a difference, right? Um, if you are a woman in a man's world, say an occupation, you are going to be harassed much, you're much more likely to be harassed sexually than say a man, right? So identity does matter. It is part and parcel of how capitalism works, right? It deploys identity in very particular ways. We want you to work for us because then that adds to our diversity statement, but we will also make life hell for you because we have no idea 
how to deal with you on different levels, right? So there's that sort of trait. So identity, is not, I'm not saying that identity doesn't matter, that that doesn't exist, but in terms of thinking about how to bring about change, how do we bring about change? Uh, I'm especially interested, as I said, in how power intersects with things like identity and group formations. So when it comes to LGBTQ politics, my interest has always been who gets to decide what a movement is, right? Um, when does someone decide what a movement is? So one of the surprising things that a lot of people don't know about gay marriage, for instance, is that you know, everyone assumes that uh, gay marriage kind of organically came about um, because first, you know, this, there's this kind of, um, there's this sort of um, essentialist idea about gay people moving upwards, uh, you know, on the tree of evolution, right, of history. First, you had the 40s and 50s, and everybody was all repressed and sad. Then you had the 60s, and everybody was all flower power in love. Then you had the 70s, and it was really nice, and you had the village people. Then you had 80s, and you had AIDS, and wasn't it horrible? And then the 90s came along, and everyone said, see, if you have too much sex, this is what happens. You get AIDS. So now let's get married, right? So that's kind of the trajectory of history that people like to draw. Uh, but the fact is that you know, gay marriage came about for very specific historical institutional reasons. And the very short version of that history is this, which is that in the 90s, our queer energy was depleted, literally and metaphorically, by the AIDS crisis. We lost people. We lost actual bodies. We also lost a lot of political organizing uh, power. That was also the time when you had um, a certain cadre of more powerful, wealthier gays and lesbians coming up the ranks, right? Um, that's when you had, 1992 was the formation of the Human Rights Campaign, which is now, which we now know as HRC, literally the world's biggest uh, gay and lesbian organization, which decided that what we need now is marriage. Now, in the 90s, queer people, gays and lesbians and queer people, all fought together for universal health care because that was the solution to the AIDS crisis. It was not, let's parcel out some benefits to some people, it's we need healthcare for everyone, right? In the 90s, HRC came along, along with it came a lot of other gay and lesbian organizations which said the same thing, which is, you know how we get healthcare? We get it by marrying each other. So that completely took away steam from any movement for anything remotely resembling universal healthcare. And what we have now is a situation where today, if you have even a domestic partnership, right, because gay marriage is now legal everywhere, but now in many companies and state employees, employers, you have a situation where you are told you cannot keep your partner, your domestic partner on your health insurance. You have to get married. So they're actually literally telling their employees, because you can now get married, like all straight people, you must get married. When Illinois passed gay marriage, the first people to file a lawsuit were actually a straight couple who wanted to remain on a domestic partnership. And they said, this is taking away our right, our right to not get married. And I'm trying to find out exactly what has happened to that lawsuit. I suspect it's gone nowhere. But that is exactly, so what I'm trying to point to is that there's no way in which Social justice doesn't come about because there's an abstraction called justice that everybody wants magically, right, at some point. It comes about because of economic issues. Um, before I go on, 
I've been using the words queer, gay, trans, but not interchangeably. And I just wanted to say that um, I'll be using them, you know, when I say gay and lesbian, they mean separate things from, say, queer, right? And I don't mean to separate queer as the most radical of the lot, but as the only way to think about identities that don't conform to expectations of what you know, a gay person or a lesbian person is. I also don't think of those terms as ahistorical. Um, there's a tendency in many circles um, to think about gay identity as something that has existed throughout history, but that's simply not true. In Chicago, for instance, there's still a controversy about whether Jane Addams, the famous social worker, and the only f American woman to ever receive a Nobel Prize, uh, if Jane Addams was in fact a lesbian. Um, and it's very problematic because to think about people as lesbians, say, in the 19th century is troubling because if you don't conceive of yourself as a lesbian in the way that you, we do in the 21st century, you're simply, we're simply transposing identities onto history. So I have trouble with that. Um, but I just wanted to sort of bracket off how I use those terms. Queer is generally how I use the term for those who don't conform to, say, binary expectations. Trans, I used to, you know, a lot of us used to use trans slash queer, and I think that's troubling now, so I don't do that anymore. Uh, trans identity is a very specific identity. Again, what's interesting to note is how trans, the word trans, uh, transgender, has also shifted. Even six years ago, you could use the word trans more loosely. Um, trans people even would use the word tranny, for instance, but that has slowly moved away, right? So we no longer use that term. So I'm, I wanna make these distinctions and notes because I wanna just think about not just politics and identity, but as language itself, right? As, th as something that doesn't mean the same thing continuously, even over a period of six years, for instance. So I just wanted to sort of um, circle that off. Um, I use the word neoliberal and neoliberalism a lot. Um, and I just want to expand upon that for a little bit, which is neoliberalism refers very broadly to the preponderance of what we might call free market values. So what does that mean, right? The preponderance of free market values. So I think of neoliberalism as what I call the privatization of everyday life. And the best example I have to explain that is when I was living in Uptown, Chase Bank was also making its inroads. Uh, that was around 2000 or so. It was opening up branches in Uptown and Ravenswood. And it was a big deal for everyone because, I don't know, probably this big multinational bank coming into a relatively you know, small uh, neighborhood was a big deal. So the way they advertised themselves was through these giant posters everywhere, which showed um, a lot of different kinds of people. And the question was, you know, oh, I need to find my local Chase Bank. Shall I go around the corner? Shall I go to the next street? Um, and then, you know, it said something like, Chase, your local blah, blah, blah bank. And the idea was that Chase, which is this gigantic, multinational, you know, rapacious banking entity, uh, was just your friendly little neighborhood bank, you know, and you would drop in for a cup of change and a free cup of coffee. And it was just this friendly little place you could go and find anywhere. So neoliberal, but what that does is, and in the process, Chase also pushed out a lot of actual neighborhood banks in the area. Neighborhood banks which actually worked with, for instance, local businesses. This is especially true 
um, on the south side, right? The big multinational banks have come in and pushed out the actual community banks, which would work with homeowners, right, who, um, who have difficulty getting loans from places like Chase, right? Um, it worked with local businesses on initiatives, and it worked with community, and it pushed out all of that. And it became this sort of large, gigantic multinational uh, which established itself as a friendly neighborhood bank. So neoliberalism is linked to that kind of phenomenon where everything that you could take for granted, right, including you know, your banking service, which was sort of in some sense something that you had more of a connection to, all of that became privatized for other people, right? So in Chicago, for instance, what we don't know is that even something like, say, water or access to the lake. I live on the south side, and very frequently the south side lakes are the worst, first ones to get shut down because they're just not taken care of. There are too many contaminants, right? So everything is privatized. The best example in Chicago, the most contentious example, is public education, right? Which is intensely privatized and constantly being charterized. So that's what neoliberalism does, is that it privatizes things like, in other parts of the world, water, air. <laughs> You know, can you breathe the air that you have to breathe in on a regular basis, or do you need to get someone, you know, some private company to come and help clean it up for you? Firefighting services recently, we're hearing more and more about privatized firefighting services. In other words, your life is also now a question of private ownership. So that's neoliberalism. It's the privatization of everyday life. Things you could take for granted or you should take for granted, let's put it that way, are not. They're being commercialized and owned by larger entities. So, um, and if you, what also gets ignored, a lot of people have written about neoliberalism. I mean, and I recommend if you want an introduction, David Harvey's the brief A Brief History of Neoliberalism, also Naomi Klein's The Shock Doctrine. Uh, those are both excellent texts to look at. But what gets ignored, because this is about economics, right? And people don't want to think about intimacy when they talk about economics. So what gets ignored in the talk about neoliberalism, and this is where LGBTQ politics especially plays a role, is the role of love, right? Is the role of intimacy. In other words, what neoliberalism does, and this is what I'm arguing in a current book project, is that um, it feeds our desires, right? So it feeds our desires how? It feeds our desires by entering into, for instance, something like healthcare, right? It turns, it takes a concept like love, and it says, because people have the right to love each other, they should be able to marry each other, and oh, now look, let's give them marriage rights, and then not allow anyone else to have something as simple as healthcare if they don't get married, right? So there's a way in which neoliberalism structures itself through our intimate lives, and gay marriage, and marriage in particular, is just one example. In the United States in particular, marriage is what gets you a lot of benefits, whether it's issues around buying housing, whatever. You know, when, once, you, once you get married, you get advantages you never dreamt of. Um, single people, single people with children are often uh, much worse off. So love is a way in which um, um, it, neoliberalism seduces us, and I'll just quote very quickly, Neoliberalism seduces us with its intimacy. Intimacy with our workplace, right? Our occupation, the idea of having to love what you do. This is something you hear of a lot. You must love what you do. If you just love what you do, everything else will be all right, right? That's often what we're all told. Our work becomes our lover. 
Neoliberalism feeds off our sense of constant economic precariousness. We're all precarious. But by convincing us that we must never demand more from the state or corporations, by using terms like sharing economies, and I say this as someone who uses Lyft and Uber pretty regularly, but you know the whole idea, right, of a sharing economy, um, uh, be, we're convinced that these are all somehow community-based endeavors. So people everywhere, and this happens especially in the world of writing, are constantly distributing the labor for free, or almost for free. In workplaces that are described as mobile, right? I commute from home, I work from home, so this is so freeing. Um, you know, you commute as a free agent. But these are, in fact, what are they? They're much more onerous because they're much likely, less likely to be regulated enterprises, right? You don't get benefits, you don't get protections. As a freelance writer, I don't have any of that, right? But hey, you know, I get to commute to my work. Um, labor of love, that's another phrase that we often hear about. So, um, so what does all of that have to do with the state of LGBTQ politics today? So I was going to talk a little bit about shit, but I won't because I want to first move to, um, I'll talk about it very quickly. I will talk about it very quickly. Okay. So <laughs> because I can never resist talking about this one piece I was able to write. So someone once approached me to write a history of shit, literally, right? And I won't give you the whole long article, but the basic, uh, it came about because of this, um, and this is very much connected to LGBTQ politics, trust me, because not just because it's all shit, but um, I was at an event, at a gallery event, many years ago in Rogers Park. And uh, this is at a space that I had used a number of times. And this one time they had this installation, let's call it that, uh, about, composting and what was getting composted you went into the restroom and there was thank goodness there was the regular toilet but there was also a bucket and the idea was that you I don't know how else to put this you use the bucket to to shit and then you covered it with sand that you picked up and then you sort of strewed it around and then you, it, it was very strange to me. But the idea was that this was more ecologically, environmentally uh, friendly, right? That this was, this was something that was going to help the earth. And as I said, I was really thankful that there, we were also allowed to use the regular, you know, flushing toilet and so on. So I started to look into this, and it's something called eco-primitivism. Uh, which is basically the idea that the world is sort of dying because we're using too much water, for instance. So the best way to preserve water is to return to archaic, old, ancient ways. You know, of, for instance, not using running water. Now, I come from India, and there are, in India and in many other places of the world, in the world, there are millions of people who are so poor and so in such dire state that they have no choice but to go to the bathroom in public, right? Uh, women are often attacked because they hold themselves in till night, and then they go into the woods, for instance, and they're often attacked because they're most vulnerable then. Uh, and of course, the humiliation itself, right? If you're poor, you don't even get to shit in private, right? So to me, it was absurd that there was this whole movement built around you know, removing ourselves from a facility that millions in the world would, would just, are just yearning for, right? 
So I was looking at that, and I was thinking about the differences between, and eco-primitivism is not a fly-by-night movement. It's actually fairly strong. There are versions of it. If you go to some places like the Center on Halstead, you'll see that the taps use gray water, which is, uh, I'm sure, you know better than I do. Gray water is water that's reused from laundry and kitchen water and so on. Uh, so it's not crap water, but it's, you know, it's, it's reused water. You can't drink it. Some people do, but you can't drink it. Right? So there is that concept, the idea of eco-primitivism, the idea that we need to return to some sort of older model, right? Uh, where we give up our modern amenities is something that's very predominant in ecological and environmental activism. And it's, it doesn't take into account the fact that different people in the world right, have different kinds of needs. So a poor person in India or in Africa doesn't really need you to come in and tell them that they shouldn't be using water when they need water just to bathe or they need to have privacy, right? The, I, the concept of privacy. But instead you have mostly you know, Western travelers who travel to places like India and Africa, come back with all these wonderful stories about, you know, this is so amazing. Um, I, was, I was in X place and there was no running water and there was no, you know, there were no toilets. Uh, so what I write, wrote about that was in the Western traveler's imaginary, the absence of places to shit paradoxically becomes the mark of a world-weary, been-there kind of sophistication. The history of shit, which is to say the history of how humanity has dealt with its shit, follows a simple trajectory that fails to take into account competing definitions and histories of modernity. There are two streams of modernity here, if we truly follow shit. One is conceived as a trajectory that has gone too far. So the eco-primitist will tell you that we need to reel it back in towards a privatized, neo-primitive composting system like that bucket. But the other, in other places, is a modernity that never began in the first place, right? So what, I, what I'm thinking, what I want to emphasize here is that what a movement like that does, right, is that it's, it constructs need and poli political energy around certain kinds of class, racial, ethnic, and in this case also national hierarchies. And it positions itself as vital. So eco-primitivism and its various forms, right, diluted or not, are actually literally seen as world-changing. If you don't do this, and if you meet eco-primitivists, you know, they are incredibly, shall we say, intense about their politics. You know, keep your friends close, to, to paraphrase the godfather, keep your friends close and your shit even closer. And we might reverse the ill effects of climate change, is the logic, right? So how, the, so the point here is that this is how movements get constructed, which is, the idea of the world being changed for the better is constructed entirely around the needs and perceptions of a community of people who don't actually have to worry about certain kinds of essential benefits, right? So now we come to gay marriage, right? There's that, so I just want to put that out there because what I want to do is to connect LGBTQ politics to politics in general, how movements get constructed. Let's now look at gay marriage. You might know about the case of Edith Windsor, otherwise known to her friends as Edie. 
Edith Windsor was the lead plaintiff in United States versus Windsor, which, and I'm really summarizing very, very broadly, legal theorists will be really angry with the way I'm portraying this, but essentially this is the case that decided gay marriage in the United States, right? So this is sort of the primary case. Edith Windsor was, I think she was about 69 or 70 when she became the lead plaintiff. The story about her was that she was that she had to pay, she was compelled to pay um, $350,000 in estate taxes uh, because, only because she was lesbian. She had been married to a woman, they got married in Canada before marriage became legal here. She was forced to pay when her partner died, when her wife died, sorry. When her wife died, she was forced to pay $350,000 and that was the whole cultural and legal impetus behind the case, right? This was the story. So everybody, the press and everyone, you know, the press, her legal team, her PR team, right? Uh, Lambda Legal de very definitely chose her. The legal team chose her as the best kind of plaintiff. She's very attractive. She was a very small, slight woman, uh, sort of well-dressed, not very threatening. You know, not some young hottie talking about her sex life with her spouse or anything like that. Nothing unpleasant. She was a perfect plaintiff and, you know, wasn't it dreadful? This little old lady living in big old bad New York City had to pay $350,000 and she must be striking matches to keep herself alive. It must, she can't pay electricity. Um, no one said that directly, but that was certainly the implication, right? Well, the true story is that she actually had owed $600,000. Why did they keep the larger amount uh, quiet? Because the, the tax, no one in America has to pay estate taxes or what the wealthy like to call death taxes. You don't pay that unless you have, a, I think it's an estate over and above $3 million. Her estate that she inherited was worth around six. My friends and I did the math. We looked into all her holdings and her, her she, she owns property in New York City, but she also owns property in upstate New York, et cetera, et cetera. Both she and her partner had very long, lucrative careers. Her partner worked, for, I think she worked for IBM and her partner was also someone who had made a considerable amount of money and also inherited family wealth. Essentially, Edith Windsor was, she's di she died recently, was worth approximately $10 million, right? The estate that she inherited was worth around $6 million. So she was no poor little old lady trying to stay, stay warm in New York City. She was a wealthy woman who now admittedly was unfairly taxed. If you're going to talk about a taxation system, yes, certainly, absolutely, I agree. It's unfair to tax gays and lesbians simply for being gay and lesbian, right? In other words, the law at the time, what it said was, if you are, you, you, you are, you don't have to pay a state tax, you're, you're, you're exempt from it only if you are a straight couple, if you're only if you're a straight heterosexual married couple, right? That's certainly completely unfair. But that wasn't how the case was sort of fought in the public eye and in front of the Supreme Court. It was, you know, this is, this is all, there was a mythology built up about her being this extremely poor woman. The fact is that she didn't want to pay it because she didn't want to pay what amounted to about, so about 10% of a rather large estate in the first place, right? Now, 
wealthy people in this country, even Bill Gates has actually come out against fighting for what people call the death tax, right? Uh, progressives and leftists have argued against, you know, have said that, you know, everyone should pay taxes. Taxes are what essentially pay for schools and roads and things like that. But the wealthy, of course, would like, you know, the extremely wealthy would like to keep as much money as they, they can. So that's, that was her issue. She didn't want to have to pay that much on her, the, the estate that she inherited, right? Um, the press colluded with this sort of narrative, and the court, you know, the case, as we all know, was won. It was only after she won the case that the New Yorker published a piece that was a profile of Edith Windsor that essentially revealed, you know, how wealthy she was. It ends with her saying, uh, picking up her purse and saying, I've got to go buy a house, uh, you know, because she apparently likes buying houses. Uh, she liked, rather, in the past tense. So, you know, the point of this is that. There's a way in which gay marriage, you know, gay marriage did not come about because of love or a need for justice. It came about because of very because the gay community, LG, LGBT community, is comprised, or rather, in this case, the LGB community is comprised the the van, you know, the those who are in charge of fundraising and defining the movement happen to be rather wealthy gays and lesbians, who echo the needs of wealthy wealthy straight people, period, of wealthy people. So when it comes to a certain strata of wealth, there are no distinctions in terms of sexuality now. That's all we can learn from the gay marriage fight. And it has been disastrous for the rest of us, because what this means now is that, as I said before, you know, in many cases, you have to get married if you want to be on someone's health care, for instance, or if you want to be on your partner's health care, you have to get married. It has also meant that we lost the fight for many years our fight for universal health care for all, health care for all, was stopped, right? And we're now trying to start it up again, and really, it's mostly kind of disastrous. So that's just an example of gay marriage. Now, in terms of trans inclusion, and I'm going to quote heavily here from Dean Spade, uh, who gave an extraordinarily prescient interview about five years ago when the trans inclusion in the military issue was just coming up. And he was asked by a writer at BuzzFeed, you know, who you know, why is this an issue right now? Why is trans inclusion in the military an issue? For the longest time, no one really cared about it, right? How did it come about? So he, he said, it came about because of a certain individual. That individual is Colonel Jennifer Natalia Pritzker. And if you're in Chicago, you know, you know the Pritzkers. Uh, billionaire heir to the Hyatt Hotel fortune. In August uh, of that year, Colonel Pritzker came out as trans publicly. The Pritzker family includes Commerce Secretary Penny Pritzker. Uh, and Jennifer Pritzker is listed in the Forbes list of the 400 richest Americans. Now, Pritzker, Jennifer Pritzker, happens to be a real supporter of the US military and also very much a supporter of this concept called the citizen soldier, which a friend and I looked into. We, write, we just co-wrote an essay about trans inclusion. It's actually a strange concept. It is, doesn't actually exist, but it's a concept that a lot of pro-military people like to rally around. But essentially, Jennifer Pritzker, who is literally listed as the world's only uh, trans billionaire, right, is the one who decided that this needed to be the fight because she has a real, you know, she has a real investment in literal and otherwise investment in the military. Um, around the same time, HRC, Human Rights Campaign, and other gay groups 
it turns out, are also being funded by military companies, right? So there's a lot of military installation money going into this cause. And you have one of the world's richest people in the world, literally, funding this effort. So that's how trans inclusion in the military came about. Now, what are the arguments about trans inclusion in the military? One of the arguments, the biggest argument is, you may have heard this, that the military is the largest employer of trans people. Now, first of all, that number is disputed. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore does some research around that. But secondly, what does it mean to, that we constantly position the military as a place that people can go to get a job? This is also the rationale that has been used historically for African Americans and for Latino immigrants. Right? That the military gives you an opportunity to enter an institution which then gives you benefits. Yes, but who, you know, which means that the poorest among us have to use the military to gain economic uh, mobility, right? We have to, we use, we have to enter it in order to gain healthcare, something as basic as healthcare, right? So, and that's the other argument for trans inclusion, which is that, well, Trans inclusion allows you healthcare. And again, that is completely, I'm sorry, but there's just no other word for it, but it is completely demented. We are not fighting any longer for saying, you know, we're not fighting for healthcare for all. We're not fighting for a world where everybody has a chance to gain social mobility. What are the real issues facing trans people? They're not going to be solved by the military, right? So when a trans, usually, more often than not, not always, nowadays you have a lot of very young people coming out as trans very early on. But for a, a lot of people, a lot of people still come out as trans relatively later in life, sometimes as, you know, 20s and 30s. That means that you, the minute you come out as trans, more often than not, you are immediately excluded from the society, sometimes from your family, sometimes from your workplace, sometimes all of that together. You're completely excluded. You are, you're often left homeless. You're left to fend for yourself sometimes with street work, sex trade, sex work, um, all of that. You're left in an astonishing state of precariousness, right? You're extremely vulnerable when you're doing street work. That is why there are such high rates of violence directed towards trans people, right? Because they're in the most vulnerable situations you can imagine. So what we need is a world, a country, a city, a place where trans people are given resources to help combat all of that, right? So if you lose your job as a trans person, what are the resources we can direct towards them to help them get their footing back in life? That is what we need. What we don't need is to tell trans people, you know, if you would just agree to go into an institution that will guarantee you probably that you will lose your life, we'll give you medical health care. This is an absolutely absurd argument, right? But this is the argument that a lot of people pro-trans inclusion in the military have been using, not to mention the very high rates of sexual assault in the military. Uh, and that is actually across the board. It's directed at women. It's directed at trans people in particular. We might remember that Chelsea Manning, for instance, was actually treated very badly by the military you know, after she came out. So it's not like the military is a safe space for trans people. Chelsea Manning was refused hormone therapy. She was even refused 
she was not even allowed to cut her hair, for instance, right? Something as basic as that. Um, so there are all those issues facing trans people, none of which will be fixed by including them in the military. The same goes for gay marriage, right? Solutions to lesbian and gay discrimination are not going to come about simply because we allow them to get married, right? We need to open up issues, things like healthcare to everyone. So what, so what exactly does this mean for us today in terms of thinking about what a radical world might look like? Not just a queer radical world, right? But what does a radical world look like? How do we envision, if we're not going, so I've told you, you know, gay marriage is a problem. Trans inclusion in the military is a problem. And you might respond, well, but people need to get married. Or people want to be in the military. That's fine, too, right? How do we build a just world that takes into account what people want and need, right? And how do we build visions for a world that are not about shutting out and excluding people at the expense of other people's lives, right? How do we go about that? So I think the logical, right, the sort of the logical response to that might be, well, let's all get together and A, you know, because we're all queers and social justice people, let's all form three committees and look into this matter, right? And how do we come up with a solution, right? How do we think about success? What I want to argue, and I'm going to end with this in a little bit, what I want to argue is that instead of working on movement building and radical visions with an eye towards success, that we start thinking about building a radical world with an eye towards utter and complete failure. How do we imagine a world working when it fails, right? And I say this because I think that too much of the success movement building also comes from the nonprofit impulse, right? If you want to fund your movement, what do you have to do? You have to go to a nonprofit or you have to form a nonprofit. You have to get grantors like Jennifer Pritzker, right? You have to get money. You have to come up with a plan of action. You have to come up with, you know, you have to come up with a five point plan. You have to come up with a multi year agenda, all of that. All of which says at the end of this, we will have accomplished X, right? But gay shame, which is the longest running, I think by now, the longest running queer radical organization, has slowly and surely been chipping away at this vision of gentrification as best for all by actually constantly saying, we could fail, right? So gay shame, for instance, takes no money. Uh, it takes no money from anyone. It works purely on, I don't know what, uh, some sort of adrenaline, right? But it also works on failure. I mean, they were here in town a couple of days ago, and they said, you know, the thing to do is to think you're, you're going to fail. And in many ways, we have failed, right? We have failed, because look at San Francisco now. But we've also succeeded, right? So if we were to give up this idea that a movement, that the people have to be included, right, along very specific uh, vectors demanded by, say, the nonprofit world, or demanded by the Jenny Pritzkers of the world who will say, you know, inclusion is excellent, right? What if we gave up all of that and simply said, what if failure is the only option? So in other words, what if we, th and, I, and I'll end with this, which is to say, you know, if we return to the state of the university, um, 
success by the university is considered what? Numbers of students, uh, also salaries of administrators, right? Those are the kinds of tokens of success. What have we said, you know, success is a student comes in and maybe sits around for 10 years and just takes courses. That's failure, but it's also not failure, right? What is the university supposed to do? To, in today's world, the university is supposed to simply embolden and create a whole class of administrators. But what have we said? A university is there to help you learn. That's failure by one account, right? But it's also success. And the same, so what I want to suggest, and I'll end with this, I literally truly will, which is that um, we don't just want to think about in creating a utopia, we don't just want to think about failure as an option. We want to think about failure as the only option. And I'll end with that. Thank you. Yasmin, thank you so much for your talk today. We have a little bit of time for a question yeah, and I'm answer. So, so uh, there is a recording of this. So to make the recording go easier, if people have their questions into the microphone, that makes it a little bit easier. Uh, so does anyone have a question for Dr. Nair? Hello. <laughs> questions, questions, questions. Who's got a question? There was a lot to absorb as well. I'm also around, and I'm also on email, so just keep that in mind. But ask me a question. Yes, please. Oh. Hold on just a second, Neil. Ah, thank you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What is what, queer? What um, is queer? I guess I know what lesbian, gay, right. transgender. Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know what queer is. Sure, sure, sure. So the, the, the short history of the word itself is that historically, uh, for a couple, I think I would say even from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, queer was often a pejorative. You know, to be queer, if you read, Ag is anyone here fond of Agatha Christie? No, okay, yeah. If you read Agatha Christie or any other archaic sort of novels, even from the 30s and 40s, you hear the word queer. Oh, he's very queer, which simply meant he was strange or weird or odd, right? In the 90s, a group, so uh, the theory from the ground up is that in the 90s, a group of activist queers in New York decided to use, say, we are queer and you know we're here. We're here, we're queer, get used to it, became the slogan. It was a way to take a word back and say, you know, you're gonna keep calling us that, we're gonna take it back and throw it back at you. So to claim it as, as so that's when the word queer became a sense of uh, a source of pride, and as we, you know, and then later on you had shows like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Today everyone uses queer as if it's an okay term, right? Uh, but it, w it has a long history of having been turned around. Another question. All right, well, let's give Dr. Nair another round of applause, please. So a couple, a couple more announcements. Uh, one, if you came for a class, make sure